while we turn our attention to the book of Philippians. Again, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This morning we are in chapter 3, really wrapping up a very important um, theological truth. The Apostle Paul started in chapter 3, verse 2, really, and goes through chapter 3, verse 16. Um, Today we're looking mostly at verses 7 through 16, but what I'd like to do is read to you in its context um, chapter 3, uh, 1 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, let me read this. I'll focus again 7 through 16, but let me read uh, chapter 3 of Philippians 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, this or already made perfect, but I I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only, verse 16, let us hold true to what we have attained. And God had a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Our study we know has been called gospel joy because Jesus is the gospel. He is the one who gives us eternal, everlasting, sustaining joy that could not be taken away from us. Chapter 3, as we read a moment ago, we see that Paul begins again reminding us of the command to rejoice. I said this earlier, it seems like all the pivotal movements within this book are wrapped up in this theme of joy. Finally, my brothers, he says, rejoice in the Lord. I'm, I'm going to keep writing the same thing to you. It's, it's no problem for me, not a trouble at all. In fact, it's a safeguard for you to remember to rejoice. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, not only by uh, rejoicing by looking back, in chapter end of chapter 2, with some faithful men, but he also, I believe, in this transition, chapter 3, verse 1, looks forward to the future. Okay, and he's concerned about the future of the church, about false teachers who would come in and teach the false gospel. They're known as Judaizers. Jewish so-called believers who taught the church or was teaching false gospel in the church that you had to obey the law, that you had to add to your faith in Jesus the works of the law. In other words, you had to first become Jewish, particularly in circumcision, before you became a Christian. Adding legalism to faith alone in Christ alone will not only rob you of your joy, but upset Paul. Um, it didn't, didn't sit very well with him. And he launched an attack on those who were teaching this false doctrine, this false gospel, by calling them dogs. Verse 2, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, false circumcision, some of your Bible translations have. And he goes on in verse 3, he says, no, you know what? Christ's followers are the true circumcision, the spiritual cutting away of the rebellious heart. 
the renewal, the regeneration of the heart by the Holy Spirit, uh, who, who not only provides life and light, but is the means of which we do worship. Verse 3, for we are the circumstances who worship by the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit that equips us to worship and, look what it says, put no confidence in the flesh. Boasting in Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It makes much of Christ. We saw that in John 16. It makes much of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. His, his complete and totally sufficient substitutionary atonement on behalf of sinners like us. Last week we saw Paul went toe-to-toe in verses 4 through 6 with those who think that they have this confidence in the flesh, who put confidence in the flesh. Remember, putting confidence in the flesh, verse 3 and verse 4, has to do with what you do. When, When someone thinks they can earn their way by their deeds, by their moral life, by their law keeping, and somehow by doing those things they are are made right with God, they have a right status with God, right relationship with God, somehow working and gaining by human achievement a righteousness that enables them to stand accepted and and justified and forgiven before God. They've worked it, they've earned it, they followed the law. Paul says, listen, if that's the case, (laughs) you gotta look at my life. And he mentions seven things of his ancestry and his achievements in which he was relying on as the right way to worship, as the, as the right way to be right with God, the giving him access, earning him a reconciled relationship with God. These seven things, what he was trusting in. But then we saw last week that he did this, this cost-benefit analysis, and he listed all these things that he did, adding them all up that he thought was gain, and he found out what? It was nothing. They were garbage. Absolutely nothing in his asset column to find favor with God. And it was a lot of stuff. But it was all garbage. It helped him in no way whatsoever to be accepted by God, to be made right with God. There was no value, there was no merit in earning a relationship with God. His ability to worship him, his religion had become his ritual, and his ritual became worthless because it was not by faith. When he added all up, all those things that he thought were gain were actually loss compared to Christ. I said last week in verse 7, if you have verse 7 in front of you, the word gain is, is in the plural, all the assets he, he, he listed, and the word loss is in the singular. And I said last week that in the blink of an eye, all the things and all the multiple assets became one singular loss, great loss. He needed to make an exchange. His confidence in the flesh, his ancestry, his achievements needed to go for the sake of Christ. Loss for gaining Christ. A loss for gaining Christ. Four things this morning as we pick up on this theme of gaining. First one is our salvation. I don't have it up, I'll just tell you. Our salvation. Second, our justification. Third, our sanctification. And fourthly, and we'll end on our determination. So first thing, Paul continues his theme of game, and he talks about his salvation. Now, I want you, what I want to do is, before we look at the scripture, I want to bring up another individual from the New Testament who, like Paul, had great wealth. Who, like Paul, was relying on law-keeping as a means of being right with God. Only this man, as far as we know, according to Scripture, never exchanged his assets. He, he never looked at his human achievements and his merit and, and exchanged it for the achievement and merit of Christ. His name is the rich young ruler. In all three synoptic gospels, synoptic means the same, the similar, I should say, not same, similar. Matthew, Mark, Luke, similar gospel. This man comes to Jesus and he asks about salvation How can I earn my way into heaven? Actually, he says, how does one inherit eternal life, gain eternal life? Matthew says that this man had great wealth. Luke tells us that this man was a ruler, most likely the ruler of the synagogue. He was a rich man. He had lots of influence. He lived a moral, exemplary life. And he comes to Jesus and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus sees through his pride and tells him, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not 
commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Do not honor your mother and father. That should sound familiar. We just did the Ten Commandments here at the church. And he said to, to Jesus, the teacher, and he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. This fifth and sixth and seventh, eighth commandment. Jesus looked at him, Mark chapter 10, and loved him. I love that verse. He looked at him and he loved him. And he had to say some hard words. But he loved them. And he said, you know what? You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, Jesus said. Give to the poor. You have treasures in heaven. And come and follow me. Scripture says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was unwilling to, to exchange his wealth for the wealth of Christ. The problem he was facing is the first commandment he wasn't following, to love the Lord thy God, have no other gods before him. He was unwilling to make that exchange, to give up his stuff, his wealth, And the wealth in that day was generally seen as God's favor, blessing upon you. Here's a man living a moral moral life, ruler of the synagogue, a young man, a ruler, and, 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 and seeing, thinking that divine blessings be upon him. And Jesus said, look, no, you need me. Exchange that wealth for me. And he said, no, I'm not gonna do that. And he walked away. That's not Paul. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he made the exchange. The historical record we know he came to faith in Jesus is in Acts chapter 9 where Saul becomes Paul. And the inner work, I said this last week, we see in here in chapter 3 of Philippians. Historically, Acts chapter 9, inwardly what the work of the Spirit was doing in Philippians chapter 3, especially verse 7. But whatever gain that I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I think every translation of the Bible, I didn't look this up, so I don't really know, but I think. Every translation of the Bible has a different word. The reason is, I've never seen this before, that word indeed is five particles of the Greek put to, just thrown out there. Uh, yeah, indeed, therefore, at least even. Like, Paul is trying to make a really clear uh, showing of his passion and force and his conviction when he says, indeed. I want you to hear that. Absolutely. Even more. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, in verse 7, Paul lays the foundation of when he came to meet Christ. Uh, for the sake of Christ. I, I, I count his loss for the sake of Christ. Now, in verse 8, he kind of steps it up a notch. So, he uses the same word count, which is our mathematical term. In other words, he, he, he counted all his, uh, uh, added all the things up that he thought was a gain. I counted that. I, I added those things up. And in verse 7, he added them up, and he's reaching back to his former life. The verb is, is going backwards, so we know that. We saw that last week. He counted all the things that he had done and all the things that he had been given in his ancestry. He added all those things up in the past. But now in verse 8, the verb is talking about reaching forward. It is the present tense, continuous action. In other words, I, I counted my, my past achievements and came up empty-handed. Now I'm counting my, my future achievements, and yep, I, I've got nothing. <laughs> I, I, I got nothing I could commend myself to God, both past and present and future. Look with me in verse 7. He says, whatever gain, again, I mentioned last week, pointing to his former life. Now in verse 8, he broadens the scope. He used a different word, panta, in, in the Greek. He says, I count everything. Whatever game in my past, now everything, verse 8, look at the end of verse 8, all things, the whole enchilada, everything as loss. Not just ancestry, ancestry, not just my human achievements of the past, verse 7, but anything and everything else you could possibly come up with from now and moving forward, I count as loss. 
Notice with me again, verse 7. It was for the what? Counted loss for what? For the sake of Christ. Putting it out there. For, for, for Jesus' sake. Verse 8, the loss of something becomes what? Surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So for the sake of Christ, now he counts loss for the surpassing worth. Surpassing worth means the, the, the more exceptionally valuable, much greater value treasure than which is compared to. In other words, there's no comparison. Reminds me, last week we talked about Matthew 13. One man, remember, standing in the field, knows his buried treasure, an extremely valuable treasure. Another man finds a pearl and knows that value of that pearl. He, he, he knows pearls. And both those men see the field that that's, that's, has great value, sees the pearl that has great value, and both of those men know that if I can get my hands on that possession, if I can possess those things, I am going to be a man of great wealth. And they sell everything. And with joy, buy the field and purchase the pearl. Therefore, knowing Christ, he says, my Lord was of greater value, a greater treasure than all that can be compiled, all the value and treasures of this life, of the past, of the present, or the future. Nothing compares to the treasure of Christ. Now, Do we treasure Christ like that? Are we willing to say everything is lost in comparison to the value and treasure and beauty of Christ? We're honest probably not all the time. But we're working that way. We're going to see Paul's going to talk about that. Everything. Everything, all that we own, all that we have. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is saying, listen, I'm I'm known. I want to know Christ. Christ knows me personally. Not only through his great act of deliverance. Look what it says, knowing Christ. That's Messiah, the Savior. Jesus, who is my Lord, is not only this, this, this recognition of Christ's work of, of redemption, but his submission to his lordship. He's my Lord. The word gnosis is the word knowledge there. It's not the oida, which oida is more of, of intellectual understanding. The knowledge here is personal relationship. More than just information. Growing in knowledge, the heartfelt, experiential knowledge and understanding and relationship with, with, with Christ. So you, you could pick up a biography and read about somebody and kind of know them intellectually. But if you sat down and you got to know them, that's a different story. That's what he's talking about here. Paul says his loss was for the sake of Christ. See that in verse 7? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Then he look what he says. He counted all things as loss at the very end of verse 8. That I might what? Gain Christ. There's the exchange. There's their salvation. It was impossible for Paul to hold on to the things of this life and to hold on to the value and the treasures of this life and all that he's gained and have a relationship with God as his gain. Mutually exclusive, you have one or the other. And Christ, he says, exceeded anything and everything else in his life. And what a difference, right? What 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 a different perspective that Paul has now that he has a relationship, a salvation or salvific relationship with Christ, right? I mean, very different. He turned away from his past. That, you know, I want to I gain God through my past. Now he says, you know what? I'm giving it all that I may gain Christ. The rich young ruler didn't do so for his salvation, but Paul does. And before we leave this point, there's one other thing I want to point out. So he... he he counts everything, adds it all up for the loss, counts it as loss for the sake of Christ, counts it all up for, for the sake of, uh, counts it as loss, sorry, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And look what it says at the end. For the sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them, there's that word again, as rubbish that I might gain Christ. As rubbish that I might gain Christ. Now, 
you have a King James Bible, you know that that word is dung. Dung. Word is rather graphic and, quite honestly, a little gross. It means poop. Dog manure. Human waste. Paul is saying that all his gains are garbage. Self-righteous deeds are like human waste. He thought they were excellent, but now they become excrement. Paul considers his ancestry, his past achievements, present achievements, future achievements useless. Can't bring me to Christ. Can't bring me into a right relationship with God. It can't bring me into a right relationship. It just can't do it. It reminded me of Isaiah 64, 6, since we're on the topic of gross. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted, polluted garment. Yes, the Hebrew word means dirty menstrual cloth. That's the Bible. Just a mailman. Paul recognized that his salvation, knowing Christ and gaining Christ, ultimately is about Christ and it comes by a righteousness given to him by faith alone. Look at verse 9. That I may gain Christ and, verse 9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that's the problem, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, we talk a lot about this at King's Chapel because it's all over Scripture. But it's also the most important, by far, the most important question in the universe is simply how does a man or a woman or a child get right with God? How does a holy, just, perfect God allow sinners, you and I, into his presence? The answer is, he doesn't, and he won't. Issue, look at, look at verse 6. Go back to the verse 6. That's the issue. Paul said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, I'm working really hard and trying to be righteous, trying to follow the laws the best as I can so that I have some sort of righteousness and that I can be made right before God. I can be accepted to God. And, and he says, look, all of that comes tumbling down when he, when, he, when he finally realizes that that can't do it. It's dung. It's garbage. It's woefully lacking. Any confidence I have in what I'm doing will not get me there. And that's the problem that neither you nor me nor Paul can live up to sinless perfection. He, like us, needs someone else's righteousness in order to be justified before God because only righteous people who lack sin, who don't sin, who's perfect, can stand before a holy, just God. Psalm 117 For the Lord is righteous. He loves the righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Only those. But the problem is Romans 3.10 that there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. Romans 3. Romans 3 continues. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, that's all of us, may be accountable to God. For... Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being, no human being, will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the problem. Very simple. The problem of humanity is sin. We're guilty sinners. We deserve nothing but God's wrath. He's not inviting sinful people into his presence. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves and nothing we can do to stand before God without being judged as sinners. There's there's not even a slightest chance of anything you earn, anything you do, no matter how much law-keeping you try, you're going to fail, I'm going to fail, and we will not be allowed in the presence of holiness. So how can a sinful man, woman, child not only do away with their sin, but also acquire enough righteousness to stand before the presence of God. He tells us in verse, three, in verse 8, verse 9 of Philippians, and everywhere else in Scripture tells us, all over the place, believers have received by faith the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ alone. It is an imputed righteousness, 
which is the opposite of works-based righteousness that Paul is trying to do that he now calls dung. We need the righteousness of another. We can't do it ourselves. An alien righteousness from someone else. We need God's righteousness. That's why Paul said to the Corinthian church, chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, for our good, for our need, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, the Son, to be sin, to be that sin offering, who knew no sin. He, that's the righteousness of Christ. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's that alien righteousness applied to us by faith. That's the exchange. We, or I should say Christ, received the punishment that we deserve, though he never deserved it himself, for he never sinned, and we receive his righteousness, though we don't deserve it because we have sinned. That's the great exchange. That's why Paul says we're found in him. It means that God sees us through the righteousness of Christ. Believers, Paul is saying, being found in Christ, are protected from judgment because we know that we have been forgiven by God through the cross and we are accepted by God through the cross and through the righteousness of Christ. It's called justification. It's when a man or a woman is counted or declared or imputed someone else's righteousness. Very, very, very important biblical truth. Justification, righteousness. A person is not made righteous, but declared righteous. Justification, righteousness, to being just before God, is not a process, but an act. It's, it's not impartation of righteousness through some sacraments, but the imputation of righteousness through faith alone in Christ alone because of his righteousness that's counted to our accounts. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. That makes Jesus and the gospel different than every single religion in the universe for all mankind. Whether it's Buddha, Islam, Hinduism, philosophy, secularism, even Judaism, for those who are trying to rely upon the law in order to be righteous. The Bible tells us the gospel is that Christ, the eternal Son of God, justifies us by faith alone in Christ alone. It's a declaration, an act of God. That we, as we trust in Jesus, who died on the cross to forgive us of all our sins, and by faith we receive his perfect righteousness that's imputed to us, and now we have access to God because he sees us through the righteousness of Christ. Let me read one verse to you, a couple of verses in Romans. I already mentioned Romans. Let me pick it up again. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We saw that already. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We're sinners, we know it. Then Paul says in verse 21, the next verse, but now the righteousness of God, that's what's necessary, has been manifested apart from the law. You can't earn it through the law. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified, forgiven and made righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the gospel tells us that Christ is our perfect, righteous redeemer. And by faith in him, our sins are forgiven. His perfect, righteous life has been imputed and credited to us. And therefore, we are accepted before God by no other means. That's the point, verse 9. To be found in him, to have union with him, to know him, to receive him, to have faith and trust in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Listen, all that is dung. I've, I've tried that route. But that which comes through faith and trust in Christ, the righteousness from God, that's what I need. I need your righteousness that depends on faith. Do you see that this morning? so important. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He said, I've gained Christ. My salvation is with him. And now I can trust that when I stand before God on that final day, I will not be found clinging to my own righteousness, my own defective obedience to the righteous requirements of God, which I fail, but I'll be found trusting in God, acquitted because of Christ's perfect life and death. As pastor elders in this church, we, we, we go through um, 
one of the things we do here, we're commanded to do in Scripture, is to talk to people about their salvation when they become members of the church. And that's one of the things that we, are, that we ask, one of the first things we ask, what are you trusting in? What are you relying on? Where is your confidence in your salvation? And unfortunately, some people are still trusting in what they do, what they've given, their faithfulness, their coming to church, all those things. Listen, though some of those things may be great things. When it comes to your salvation, human excrement. Because you can't have faith in Christ and works. Salvation is by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. But Paul moves on, talks about sanctification. Talks about sanctification. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Again, the word know, uh, gnosis, it's, 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 it's not just cognizant, it's personal, experiential, it's intimate. Paul knows Christ, but because Paul loves Jesus, he wants to know him more, he wants to grow. He start, you know, starts his relationship with Christ by faith, and he wants to grow in, 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 a, in, a, in a life-shaping way. Not just facts, not just doctrine, but wants to know personally, experientially, Christ better and better. And this gradual process of getting to know Jesus more and more is called sanctification, right? Being more like Christ. We talked about it in chapter 2, right? Maintaining and strengthening and developing character that, that resembles Christ. You're walking with Jesus. You're following Jesus. You want to look more like your master. To know him is Paul's all-embracing, ever-deepening, ever-widening desire to, to, to know him, to love him, to, to know him personally more and more. Not only personally, but look what it says powerfully. To know him and the power, not just personally, but powerfully, the power of resurrection. 2,000 years ago, for us anyway, probably around 30 years ago for Paul, it was the first day of the week, actually before the sun rose in the sky, there was a cold body, a corpse. His name is Jesus. He's in a cave, sealed, laying on a cold stone rock. His heart was pierced, blood poured out, Obviously, his heart wasn't beating. His body laid in the grave. It was dark. It was cold. Blood that remained in his veins became thick. His eyes closed. The body wrapped tightly with spices and grave clothes for his burial. Three days. Then as dawn began, Jesus' eyes blinked. He opened his eyes, his heart began to pump blood, his lungs began to work, breathing in and out. And with the effortless of omnipotent power, Jesus' body comes alive and he leaves the empty tomb, leaving his grave clothes like an empty cocoon on that dark, cold stone. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. God's power, his life-giving power deployed as he rose Christ from the grave. Paul says, I want that power. I know what it's like to be awakened by that power. I know what it's like to be sustained by that power. I want to live in the power of the resurrection. What an awesome statement. What an awesome reality. We experience the same resurrection power that raised Christ three days dead cold in the tomb we share with him. That same power that brought life to a dead and lifeless body. The same resurrection power lives within us to resist temptation, to conform us to the image of Jesus. To know Christ is to know his power in your life. Ephesians, Paul said this, you're dead, you were dead. You were dead, dead, dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the power working in us to make us holy, to make us 
more like Christ, to understand the greater, the love and the mercy of Christ, to, to give us strength to endure forever. Now, again, can we, are we living in that power? Do we realize that the power of the resurrection dwells within us who, are been, who have been renewed, born again? Is that the characteristics of our lives, that we're living in the power of the resurrection? I know it's not true for me every moment of every day. And I don't think it's true for Paul every moment of every day, which we shall see. But one thing we know, he has gained Christ, he's justified in Christ, and now he wants to know him more personally, he wants to know him more powerfully, and finally wants to know him more, unfortunately for Christians, (laughs) painfully, look what it says, to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Christ followers share. That, By the way, that word is the same word koinonia, that we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 5, the joint participation in is not just having coffee together. He's saying that Christians share the joint participators in the suffering of Christ. Now, we're not going to the cross like Jesus, but suffering for him. Men and women face suffering, and the purpose of that suffering, according to this verse, is to know him better, to, to die for him, to, 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 to die in the likeness of his death. See what it says? Becoming like him in his death. In other words, to, to, to die to self, to live sacrificially for him. Suffering for Christ is about intimacy with Christ. An opportunity for us as we suffer, as we are persecuted, as we have difficulties in our lives, it's an opportunity for us to die to self, to grow in likeness of Christ. And so I would say, some of you probably would agree with me, that suffering is probably one of the greatest ways that we grow if our eyes are fixed upon Jesus. Are we willing to suffer for Christ? Knowing it's purposeful to know him intimately, to grow in him exponentially. The Lord said this concerning Paul in Acts chapter 9, for I will show him, that's Paul, how much he must suffer for my namesake. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 29 of Philippians, he says that we've been graced is the word, not just granted, but we've been graced, we've been given it by grace, the gift of suffering for Christ. It's a divine gift. You're welcome. A sign of intimacy with Christ. One of the commentaries I've used is called Exalting Jesus in Philippians by Dave Pat Pratt, and I think is the, is, the, is the guy in charge there. But listen to, the, what, listen to what it says about this verse. Following the man of sorrows, we too will encounter suffering and sorrow. And as we follow along this Calvary road, we will know the master better. If you want to know Christ more than anything in life, and it's through suffering for him that you'll do that and know him better, then you won't mind suffering. It will be worth it. You will actually find joy in it. End quote. Now look at with me at verse 11. I think it's a transitional verse. Paul's, Paul's talking about becoming more like Christ, growing in, in sanctification, but yet he says he has not attained it yet. Look at verse 11. He's not completely there. He wants to press on. We'll see that in verse 12 through 16. But, but now there's this transition. He, he's not fully there yet. Look at verse 11. That by any means... Well, that I may know him in the power of the resurrection, verse 10, and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, the word attain means goal. I I want to, I have this goal to attain to. And the word resurrection, verse 11, if you mark your Bibles up, definitely put a mark, uh, uh, underline under that word. It's what they call a hapox. There's a $5 word, legomenon. In other words, that, there's only one place in all of the New Testament you'll find that word. Now you say, well, the word resurrection is all over the Bible. That's true. But here in chapter 3, verse 11, there's a little prefix in front of the word resurrection that you will only find one time in the whole Bible. And that's why scholars have a hard time understanding this verse. The prefix literally means out of. Like, why, why would you put out of, out of resurrection or out resurrection in this passage? Well, there's two reasons, possible reasons. One is, if you look at verse 11, when he talks about resurrection from the dead, if you take that physical, physical death, then the resurrection, out resurrection, talking about the resurrection from the body. 
1 Corinthians 15 talks about being resurrected, that Christians who have faith in Jesus Christ will be resurrected with full bodies to, to go to glory with him when he returns, or the rapture, before the millennial, depends on where you stand. But the point is, you'll be raptured. And some people say, well, he's talking about physical death, he's talking about the resurrection. The problem with that interpretation is, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15 and other places in Scripture as being absolutely certain. It's not maybe. But here in verse 11, look what he says, that, that any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, even more like not sure yet. Not that I have already obtained it or obtained this. Well, is it certain or is it not certain? And some people say, well, Paul, Paul's not that he's not certain. He just doesn't know when. Okay. He's not sure if he's going to die in jail, when the resurrection is going to be. He doesn't know. Maybe he's just being humble, some say. But there's another way to interpret this passage that I think fits the context better. The word here in verse 11, from the dead, is not physical death, but spiritual death. That's my opinion. Spiritual death, not physical death. And the word out-resurrection refers to the new resurrected life that Paul has in Christ. In other words, he's dead to sin and dead to self, and now he's walking in the newness of life. Paul talks about it in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. To me, that fits the context of sanctification. He goes on to write in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in death like his doesn't mean crucified, right? We shall be united with him in the resurrection life. He goes on to say, so you also, meaning us, must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's desire, I believe, is to know Christ. That's his goal. What he's trying to attain is to live in the power of his resurrection. But, although he wants to be completely like him, but he's not there yet. Not that I've already attained the fullness of the power of the resurrection and being just like Jesus. I'm not there yet. Kenneth Weiss, uh, the Greek scholar, says this. Paul desires the full operation of this life to surge through his Christian experience in such a manner that the fragrance of the life of his Lord may permeate his life. This is the goal to which he is striving and the goal to which he has not yet attained, end quote. And of course, Paul, we know, we, all of us know, we want to be like Christ, but we're not there. We know that we want to live in the perfect power of that resurrection that brought death to life. We're not there. Paul's saying, I have a relationship with Christ. I, I know it's like to live and to grow and, and see some of that power being conformed to his, to his uh, being conformed to his death, in other words, death to self uh, the sacrifice of Jesus, and I want to live for the glory of God, but I'm not there yet. There's a difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is an act of God. Sanctification, we're growing. I think that's what Paul is saying. Nobody can live perfectly. That's, we're striving for that. That's sanctification. But look what he says lastly. We're determined. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, out-resurrection, living in perfect, uh, power, not that I've already attained this, or am already perfect, that word perfect, fully matured, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. So it is this, this sanctifying desire in Paul to some degree is a life of dissatisfaction. That's what he's saying. The word obtain means to hold, to seize. The word press on is to pursue. So something I'm, I'm pressing on is something I'm pursuing that I haven't obtained yet. You see that? And he's using a, a Greek, uh, he's using an illustration from, the, from a runner. The idea of moving quickly and continuously, energetically, striving to reach a goal. And here's what Paul's saying. Here's what Paul is saying. Within followers of Christ, if you're a genuine, born-again, renewed, rebirthed child of God, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, there's a sense in which we share with Paul this idea, what uh, Warren Worsby calls sanctified dissatisfaction, that there's, a, there's always this within us that we want to grow. We, we, we want to be better. 
We, we want to not sin as much. We want to overcome certain sins in our life. There's this idea that we're not there yet, but there is within us a desire to get there. There's a dissatisfaction. I'm, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's your salvation, that you're trying to work, 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 work. I'm not there yet. I want to get saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we love Jesus. We want to love him more. We want to love him more. We're not satisfied where we are spiritually. We're reading the scriptures. We're, we're gathering together. We want to press on. We know him as Lord and Savior and Redeemer and friend, but we want to know him. We want more of his power in our lives. And sometimes, though, I think, family, and I'm included in this, I think sometimes we live off our past experiences. Sometimes I think we've already arrived, arrived where we should be spiritually. Or maybe we even look at others and say, you know what, I'm better than that person. And we slip into this mode of not really pressing on. That's not a good place to be. He says, I press on. I press on. Because, Christ, because look what he says, I, I want to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Interesting word there. What Paul is saying is, think of a, think of a, 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 a defensive player in football. Not only is he chasing the dude with the ball, but he wants to take him down. And that word there, when he talks about making my own, is to, to, to seize down. It's the same word, but seize down. In other words, Paul says, when Jesus knocked me off my horse, he got a hold of me, and he seized me, and he pulled me down. I am his, and now I want to turn that around, and I want to show that I'm his too. That's what he's saying. The Lord sees Paul, now Paul's determined to seize and to serve and to hold on to his Savior for the rest of his life. We sing that song, I want to cling to Christ, but it's that he clings to us. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own. Completely seize Christ. Fully mature. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul's saying, as I grow in my knowledge, I'm determined not to let my past failures and my past frustrations knock me down and take me out of the race. Before Paul became a Christian, he said, man, I've arrived, man, to the law, under the law, I am righteous, I am blameless. Now all of a sudden he's saved, he's like, oh no, I got room to grow. I got room to grow. I'm not perfect. He's not denying his failures or sins, but he says, I've gone to forget. Now, now the word forget in Scripture does not mean amnesia. The word forget, when you talk about Jesus, God forgets our sins, it doesn't mean amnesia. It means it no longer has any influence over him. No longer has any effect by it. He's not allowing the past to control his present. Right? He's not wiping out memory. But he's saying, look, by the power of God, by the work of the gospel, the influence of my past no longer will control me. I won't be highly influenced by my past to where I'm going. And again, using the illustration, he, he, if you've ever been in a race, if you've ever been in a race, you do Seinfeld race, this would be a good one. But anyway, uh, if you've ever been on a race, you don't look back. Who's, what's behind you doesn't matter. You're past. You start looking back, you start looking over your shoulders, you're going to fall and stumble. Paul said, don't look back. Don't look back. I, I, I found two reasons that most people will look back. And maybe you're here and, and you can relate to this. Number one, guilt. So guilty of the past that you keep looking back. If there's anybody who's guilty of the past, it would be a, someone who came in churches and killed people. That was Paul. He didn't reach back to the past. He said, you know what? Sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. I'm in Christ. The past guilt is not going to hold me down. You know what the second thing is? People look back. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, unfortunately. Scripture tells us that if we have an unforgiving heart, we'll be turned over to the torturers, Matthew 18. Listen, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we need to turn around and forgive those who have harmed us. Remembering forgiveness is about you healing from the past, taking yourself off the hook of the past, getting off the treadmill of the past, the past pain and suffering. Both guilt and unforgiveness will rob us of our confidence. Paul continues, not only is it the past, but he uses athletic, and he says, I'm striving forward. Look at verse 13b. I do not forget what lies behind. I straining forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm passionate about moving forward. 
He's running hard after the prize. Again, the prize is not salvation. The prize is seeing Jesus face to face. It's with uh, the desire to have Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge over many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Lastly, forget what's behind this. not going to hold me down. I'm going to deal with my guilt. I'm going to deal with my forgiveness. I'm striving forward. I'm, I'm looking ahead to the call of Christ. He saved me. He justified me. I'm being sanctified in him. I'm knowing him more and more. And someday I will see that heavenly call. I will know him face to face and be with him. That's the promise he made me. He has me in his grip. And let those who are mature... Think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, Paul is saying, act your age. Act your age. In fact, the word let us hold true means keep in line with. So if you have, if you have children, or maybe when you grew up in your home, there's a place, you open up a door, maybe a hallway, and there's marks on the door. And every year you put a mark next to your kid and watching them grow. And then one day your kid came in and said, okay, mark it. You'd be like, yo, stand up. You're not six anymore. You're 15. Paul said, look, if you're mature, act mature. Hold on to what you already have. Press on. Stand up. Stand up straight. As the band come on up, let me, let me wrap it up this way. Church, Paul, with great joy, writes to this little church he planted 10 years earlier and cautions them and says, listen, don't let false gospel rob you of joy. Don't let those come in and say you can add to your salvation. You can't. If anybody could, it would be me. If anyone could add human achievement, moral uprightness to be accepted before God, it would be me. Get off that treadmill because it's going to rob you of your joy. Paul says, listen, Everything I gain through my achievement, my moral righteousness, my zeal for the law is worthless. It's human waste. Once I found that I've been accepted before God through the imputation of Christ's righteousness by faith alone, Jesus became my greatest treasure. And now all I want to do is make him known, to know him more, to love him more, to grow and to be like him more the rest of my life until I see him face to face. We're going to sing, and part of the words is, we live by faith alone, clothed in merit not our own. We all claim Jesus Christ and his finished sacrifice. We are saved by grace alone, undeserved, yet freely shown. No accomplishment on earth can achieve that second birth, that salvation that we need. Let us worship the Lord because of his grace and mercy he has shown us in Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the salvation you've provided. Help us, Lord, not to try to merit something you've already given to us, but let us rest in your grace and live out of the abundance of your mercy and grace as we respond in obedience to you out of the grace you've already shown us. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.